Okay, everyone, welcome to another MEPcast, this time with uh, a, a very famous lady, uh, renowned professor Anu Bradford. Anu, hello. Uh, you're, you're in New York, if I understand correctly. I am, I am. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Um, Anu and I were going to actually have this discussion at an event in Parliament in the last week that, as you said before, when we were talking off camera, sort of resembled normalcy, yeah, something. But that was canceled because of the, of the COVID-19 uh, situation. So here we are doing it uh, digitally. And uh, I think we'll have, another, we'll have another aspect to this because um, Anu is a professor at um, Columbia Law School, and she is also the director of the European Legal Studies Center. And she is the famous author of the book called The Brussels Effect, which is um, for anybody who's not obsessed with Brussels or doesn't live in the Brussels bubble, although everybody, uh, lots of people have read this book. It basically um, says Brussels, Brussels may not be a superpower in other respects, but it could be a superpower, or it is, by virtue of the fact that it exports its regulatory uh, framework through companies who basically need to comply because they have to do business in such a big market. I've tried to summarize this. Um, this is the basic, the basic thesis as I understand it, but since we have the honor and the pleasure of having you with us, why don't we start with this, Anu? Why don't you tell us, you know, tell us, first of all, how you came up with this, and second of all, what is the Brussels effect? Yeah, so how did I came up with this? It really was uh, my attempt and my frustration, if you like, to counter this persistent narrative that the Europe is weak, that the European Union doesn't matter, it has lost its way, it has lost its power and the ability to influence the world affairs. Whereas in my own research, I have come across constant examples of European power. And mm -hmm. it is really captured through this ability to unilaterally regulate the global marketplace. And that's what I call the Brussels effect. So the European Union is one of the largest and wealthiest consumer markets in the world. And as you said, there are very few companies that operate globally and that can afford not to trade in Europe. So they need to follow the European rules in order to engage with the European market. That's expected. But what makes it interesting is that often these companies voluntarily choose to extend those European rules across their global conduct and operations mm -hmm. because they want to avoid the cost of producing different products for different markets. So it is what Europe does is that it regulates the single market and it is the global companies that then globalize the rules that come from Brussels. But I mean, there's other big markets too, right? I know, I mean, China's a big, Asia's a big market. Uh, the US is a big market. So why do they, what, I mean, do they just comply with the European regulations because they're the strictest most of the time? So if you comply with them, then you've complied with everything else. So is this just, is this, is this a phenomenon of globalization that happens to help Europe because Europe is united or is it, Another, is it, is it, is there any value basis in the choice of companies to comply with these or is it just all profit and self-interest? Yeah, so there is nothing that suggests that we could not see the Washington effect. You're absolutely right. America is a huge market and it's a very wealthy market. China is not as wealthy, 
but there's a lot of Chinese. It is an important consumer market today. Sure. Yet we don't see the Beijing effect and we don't see the Washington effect because the market size alone is not enough. You also need to have the regulatory institutions like the parliament, like the commission, and, and Europe has those. There is plenty of regulatory capacity in Washington, DC. That's not the problem. But that capacity largely sits idle. There's been very little willingness to deploy that regulatory uh, capacity. So Washington has chosen not to regulate. It has primarily pursued a deregulatory agenda, stepped mm -hmm. away from regulation, which has then created the opening for the European Union to step in. So, China so basically we're a bunch of bureaucrats and that's our power? <laughs> it's a bureaucrats, but I think it is a bureaucracy that is generating rules that are based on values, that are European values. So if you think about the general data protection regulation, okay. yes, it came out of a process that was bureaucratic. Uh, a lot of the regulatory rulemaking does involve a very skillful bureaucracy, but it also allows the EU to project a set of values that then it can globalize through the Brussels effect. And there are different values that Chinese would have than the Americans have, but since they don't have the same, China doesn't have the regulatory capacity. It doesn't have the kind of institutions. The US has the capacity, but it doesn't have the political will. So Europe has had the capacity, coupled with the political will across the decision makers, but also the backing of the European citizens to support uh, protection of the environment, the protection of health and safety of the consumers, the, the data privacy of individuals and so forth. Okay, well, let the, the world is changing though, correct, Anu? The world is changing. Absolutely. I think we just got I think we just got a big a big game changer and which is which is the, the COVID-19 virus and what that does. And you mentioned GDPR. Let's take that as an example because that's that's been something that um, that's clearly value-based, correct? I mean, protection of privacy and putting that above and beyond even technological advancement because I mean, let, let's let's be clear. A lot of companies don't like GDPR because and and complain about GDPR as a big burden on them, which doesn't allow them to move forward technologically like China's companies are are able to because they have none of these they have none of these uh, none of these regulations in place, obviously. So now GDPR though is about in my in my mind there's going to be some changes to GDPR if we're going to do things like use AI uh, apps tracking apps uh, tracing apps to deal with the COVID nineteen virus. So what happens to the regulatory effect when it starts um, diminishing or or will that happen? I mean, do you think that COVID nineteen is going to make for more regulations in Europe, less regulations, stronger regulations, more complicated regulations? How, how do you think this is gonna go forward? Yeah, so I would say that unless we see a totally dramatic halt in globalization, we will not see the erosion of the Brussels effect. So yes, the Brussels effect does rely on the idea that companies operate globally. And there is some risk of us erecting those barriers, holding onto those barriers and moving towards this mindset of economic nationalism. But I think the world just cannot afford 
to move the production behind the borders, stop engaging in the global marketplace. So I doubt we see to the extent that we see an end of globalization and hence the end of the EU's regulatory power. The EU's regulatory power is also quite resilient through the crisis. If you think about the GDPR that we have discussed, Brexit did not derail that, the migration crisis didn't derail that. The regulatory power is technocratic and the technocratic agenda continues even if there is a big political storm. When the council is debating some emergency measures, the, the commission uh, uh, officials that are in charge of preparing the Digital Services Act will continue their regulatory domain and take the regulations forward. So I think the technocratic depoliticized nature of some of these regulations allow them to survive the crisis as well. But, but the COVID may force us to rethink to some extent the way we go about protecting privacy, especially in the extreme situations when uh, public health measures require us to consider how much privacy we can afford to extend if we do need to deploy technology to, um, to, uh, towards contact tracing, for instance. I doubt the Europeans are going to give up the value they place on privacy mm -hmm. and, and embrace the Chinese type of digital surveillance. Sure. But we may see some reshifting and rethinking um, that we can make sure that we're still resilient in responding to the crisis as well and can emerge from the crisis and restart our economies. So there will still be a Brussels effect? I think there will, still be, there will still be the Brussels effect. We may see many other regulations, whether it's food safety or anything mm -hmm. after this crisis, that I think uh, that citizens around the world will take very seriously and they will look to Brussels for guidance. Yeah. Um, do, do you think that the Brussels effect or regulations that will deal with uh, health, like you said, safety, do you think privacy, these types of new AI applications, do you think these will bring the member states closer together or do you think they will be, let's say, a reason for them to move a little bit more become more entrenched in their own personal interests as a result of the crisis? So we have seen some kind of, uh, we, we have seen a rise of economic nationalism, we've seen the rise of populism, we've seen the frustration of the Italians, for instance, when the European solidarity wasn't immediately forthcoming. But at the same time, if you consider the challenges that are most pressing and facing us, none of those can be solved by any nation alone. If you think about the climate change, if you think about the migration crisis, if you think about the future of the interconnected digital economy, mm -hmm. uh, the financial crisis when the economies are so intertwined, it is not an era where nationalism and domestic policy solutions can provide the answers. So I think even in the area of public health, what we may see is an increasing shift of powers from the member states to Brussels if we conclude that we need more joint testing, sure. more uh, joint development of vaccines, joint procurement of uh, critical medical supplies in order to keep the Europeans safe. We've also seen more rise in the restoring the faith in experts and science. And that is something that I think is welcome 
and that can also only point us towards more European solutions. It would be nice if that trust would translate into more trust in the European institutions, but as unfortunately that's not happening, at least not at this moment in the, in the crisis. But um, what, what is happening is there's lots of discussion on, uh, on what solidarity means and, and how this will be implemented and if, if there'll be more regulation. For example, let's take, I'm, I'm as you know, the vice chair of the International Trade Committee. So when we talk trade, obviously has taken a, a, a large hit from border closures. This wave of protectionism is a, 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 a big threat to, to the multilateral uh, trade order that the EU is used to championing. Um, so we're now we're now clearly talking about reshoring certain industries that are critical. We're clearly talking about self-sufficiency is obviously out of the question, I think, but we're talking about strategic autonomy and um, and industrial policy that guarantees certain basics in crisis type situations like like the ones that we're facing. Um, so this might might in fact mean more regulation. Uh, and this might, in fact, make it more obligatory for companies who want to be strategic in, in Europe to, to follow um, EU regulations, not just in a global context. So, again, that, that I think, lends credibility to your, to your thesis in the future. So we can expect to see the Brussels effect for years to come, is that right? I think we can expect to see uh, Brussels effect to continue. I do discuss in the book that it is inevitable that the share of Europe of the global GDP will go down. Other markets grow in importance. So the kind of strategic nimble thinking that you discuss is needed in order to, to make sure that Europe remains relevant. And in many ways, Europe hasn't only managed to export its regulations through these market forces where the size of the European market is critical. Many governments around the world have also followed European regulations and adopted them into their domestic regulatory frameworks. Mm -hmm. So even if the Europe's relative size of the global marketplace will shrink, companies are facing European style regulations increasingly around the world. Again, the GDPR is a huge example of its international success. Sure. So in many ways, Europe is more resilient also because it had managed to change the way different companies and governments around the world regulate. And that is also something that I hope Europe will continue to focus on. Well, let's see. Well, thank you, Professor Bradford. I appreciate your, your insights and, and updating of the Brussels effect theory. Hopefully we will soon, you're, you're in New York, correct? Absolutely, yep. yes, in New York. York. So hopefully the borders will be open between Europe and the United States soon and we can have this discussion in person uh, when with all of this behind us in the near future, that would be very, very welcome for all of us. So I very much hope that will happen soon. Thank you very much, uh, Anu. I really appreciate you talking to us and look forward to seeing you in person. All the best. Stay safe. All the best. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.